Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, yeah. Anywho, we are, uh, this is the last sermon in this series of 6 8 at 6 8, if you guys remember. Uh, we've been here for a, n- a number of weeks, and it's been a really good time for me to revisit all this stuff. I'm really glad to, to be able to do this. And, th- and the value of grace has kind of shown through, as it pertains to the values of community and the story of God, has shown through, I think, all the way through this, and it will today with the value of passion as we get into this. Um, we remember that grace saves us once and for all, uh, transforms us daily, and purity and holiness and things like that in striving towards God's standard in the law uh, are important, right? But purity and holiness, or in church speak, that process of sanctification, that process of being made into the likeness of Christ, is only transforming when it is grounded in God's love and His acceptance of us based on His grace towards us, right? Not, not on performance, not on how well we do stuff, right? Uh, how well we uh, live our lives and all that kind of junk. But, you know, without grace, law becomes damaging, but obedience to God's law under grace becomes freeing. By the way, did you see our new stage? Amen, yeah? Like I can spit on you now, right? All you people in the front row. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah, kind of run around here and stuff. This is fun. Um, uh, Anywho, it smelled up till yesterday, so now it doesn't smell anymore, thank God. But all right, so let me get back into this. <laughs> you know, therefore, as we think about this, all this stuff that we've been talking about, how do we go about living in response to the grace that we receive daily as we pursue this life of holiness and purity? Or better said, how do we go about living a life of passionate worship of Jesus? Right? How do we do that? This is, this is how our, passion, our, our value of passion reads. It says, in response to the grace extended through Jesus, we value a lifestyle of holistic, passionate worship. We seek to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Him in all areas of life, corporately and individually. One experience of this can be found in our weekly gathering this morning, right? Uh, in which we strive to create an open, relaxed, interactive, and creative atmosphere. However, our worship extends to every aspect of our personal lives in what we believe and value and how we live and how we think and how we treat others. We avoid busyness, but work hard for the joy that's set before us in Jesus. Our passion for worship extends to the holistic value of God's grace and creation, or value of God's creation in its entirety. And then, if you remember, for every value, we've written like a paragraph called a mature Christian profile of what a mature Christian looks like in light of that value. And it says this about this uh, value of passion. It says, the mature Christian in the issue of passion sees all of life as their spiritual act of worship, right? They have grown past the empty notion that worship is found only in song on Sunday mornings. They value creation, people, and all of life, and their decisions, inner thoughts, and heart life are all a sacrifice to God. They have come to realize that consistent good treatment of others and how they interact with the Holy Spirit are more profoundly worshipful experiences than occasional worship gatherings. Not that the worship gatherings are not important. They are very important. Um, 
They make kingdom choices which may seem illogical on a worldly standard and are based on calling and scripture. However, these choices are not in isolation. They are based on God's word with interaction with the Holy Spirit and the faith community. Worship and passion for God as reflected in Christ is a lifestyle, not an event for them. Their passionate worship in all areas drives them outward to take the good news to their neighbors and family and friends. So, in reading all that, we realize that passion matters as we see ourselves linked to this continual story of God with grace, like this river running all the way through our lives, right? In, in everything that we do. And so, when you think about that, and we look forward to our future, right, we have to ask, where's our story headed? Where am I as an individual going in this whole story of God? Where are we as a collective community, a a local church, headed in this story of God? Because our story will be driven by our passion. It will be driven by our passion. Because passion reveals our true desire and gives our story its direction in life, doesn't it? You don't do anything without being passionate about it, usually, right? I mean, there's things you have to do that you grit your teeth and get through, but you don't go back and do them again, right? Who goes back to college? Everybody hated college, right? Who wants to go back to high school? It sucked. Can you say that? Anyway, but your story moves towards what you love and what you desire most in the world. It really does. Passion directs. It directs us. It reveals the object of our worship, right? It shows where we're headed, and it reveals on uh, who we're becoming. To what does Jesus, then, direct our passion? Well, obviously to himself, right? But in Matthew 6, and 34, he says this, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, Therefore, do not worry. How often do you worry, right? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, or for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So you see that something about the kingdom and worry in life are contradictory with each other, right? And when we find out is that when the kingdom of God and Christ's righteousness are our central passion in life, that transformation in us occurs. With a natural outpouring of trust and purity and holiness coming out of our lives. A lifestyle of passionate worship, right? That it just bleeds out of every part of us. Children give themselves fully to the object of their passion. They really do. My son, when he was younger, younger, my oldest son Aiden loved sticks and swords and Peter Pan, he had a little Peter Pan outfit. He used to like run around with little sticks and swords in his belt. Um, Maddie just loved animals and flowers and dresses. You know, she would like run around in her dress, like holding it up, you know. And Sana just loves life. Sana's here today with us someplace in the room, but she just loves life, right? Sana is just this, she's the sunflower right there, that my, my tattoo. Um, she, and, and she just loves life. Tanner loves a good joke. And loves the drums, right? He's just, he's just a funny guy. I love my son Tanner. He just, he's just uh, got a great sense of humor. But whatever your child's passion is, you hear about it, right? 
And when, when parents pick up their young children, like, you know, four, five, six years old or whatever age that is, uh, from school or from a babysitter, you find out what their real, the, uh, the central object of their, their passion is, and that is mom and dad. When they get to high school, not so much, right? But when they're little, they're like, you are just the center of their world, that you are their passion, Right? And we intentionally use this word passion when writing this value because passion is synonymous with worship. But worship has lost some meaning for us, right? Uh, worship's become just this weekly music event for church, churchy people, right? Uh, which doesn't begin to even round out the idea of holistic passionate worship in life. One pastor said, worship isn't just song, it is sermon as well. Correct, but it's still very limited. He also stated that missions exist because worship doesn't among all the nations, all the people groups of the world. That is true, that is scriptural. Worship's our end goal and mission will one day cease, but worship will continue forever. And that is very true, right? Worship has an objective focus. It's what you give your life to. It's what you see as most important in life. Every decision that we make stems from what you worship, right? Worship of God should be at the center of our worldview. The object of our worship, you know, guides all that we do and choose and feel and think. Charles Misner, a scientist in general relativity, it's hard to say this, general relativity theory, uh, spoke of Albert Einstein's skepticism of the church and how shallow he felt it was in the realm of worship. He said this, the design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion although he strikes me as a very basically, uh, basically a very religious man. He must, have, he must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen so much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. Mm. That's part of it, right? That's part of the answer. You know, stop. Look at the majesty of the world. Take notice of the beauty which surrounds us. That's why Kim and I go backpacking. My gosh, when you get out there, it is just so moving, right? But even that's limited. Even that has its limits. Our statement says, we value a lifestyle of holistic, passionate worship, right? Which is synonymous with pursuing first his kingdom and his righteousness, his kingdom being the, the, the reign of God in my life, the reign of God in our church, right? And his righteousness being that we are rightly related to, him, to God by grace alone through faith alone, right? In seeking these two things first, in really driving into them, everything else falls into place. But there are two things. There are two things that happen to us which hinder this pursuit and this worship of God. Firstly, we lose our childlikeness. We lose our childlikeness, right? 
You know, if raised by a loving, gentle, directive parent, children easily, easily trust and obey, right? They run freely within the safety of limits. They give themselves completely to that gracious parental authority, and in doing so, they play freely, enjoying all the pleasures of life. Children want and respond well to good boundaries, healthy boundaries. They really do. Without healthy boundaries, they become unruly. They become unpleasant. And it actually destroys relationship. A parent does a child damage if they don't discipline and provide boundaries well for their children, right? We once lived next to this park, and now we live behind a school, a schoolyard, and the same thing happens. In springtime, with the windows open, you hear the laughter of children, it's just beautiful. It's a great sound. My neighbor complains about it. I'm like, how can you complain about that? Like, what in the world? Are you the devil itself? Like, like not in the world. Why, why would that upset you? Right? <laughs> I hope she doesn't listen to this sermon. But <laughs> this will be the one Sunday she'll be like, oh, I should listen to one of his sermons. What did you say about me? Uh, anyway. But <laughs> kids give them over, themselves over to joy. They just play, right? It's pure, it's innocent, it's good, it's nice. And parental rules and direction have their place in their lives. You don't want joy destroyed with the trauma of a child running outside of their healthy boundaries that have been erected for them. And we saw that in Havertown just last night. Not that that was their mo- that mother's fault. But when a child runs out of the boundaries, they run, they run into danger. It's ironic that I had written this sermon with this illustration that today when that happened yesterday. It really is. But maybe God will use that to drive this point home in our hearts. Likewise, God's standards set boundaries for us to keep us from running into danger ourselves, right? Laws not to limit freedom and joy, but rather to foster freedom and joy in our lives, keeping us free from the bondage of things which would you know, rob us of life in whatever form that takes. God's moral law brings life when lived under His grace. They're to keep us running and sort of playing with God as we can, we can be free to do so. And we understand all too easily that good laws in society keep our neighborhoods safe and foster freedom for us, right? They really do. You pursue your dreams and you, you, don't, you, you, you don't worry about you know, getting robbed or killed because the, the rule of law is in place in our country. It's the same with God's standards which lead us to freedom in Him. But for every child at play, that damaging fear, that evil of the world seems to seep in, doesn't it? Other rules come into play, over, overly controlling rules which tamper joy and choke the life out of living. Rules not of a good parent, but of a ba- bad overbearing parent or another negative influence in life. Sin in ourselves and in others corrode this joyful freedom that we were meant to have. Fear and control from others get impressed on a child's psyche. And we, they hear things like, stop that and grow up and don't do that. You're embarrassing me and you don't deserve it and you're worthless. And many worse things have been said to children as they've grown older. 
As a child grows, they may become jaded. They may become cynical. They're growing up, we call it, right? Lies are whispered in their ears. Anxiety enters into the playground. And attention is diverted away from the loving parent. And worry takes root. Worry that is contradictory to the kingdom of God. Cynicism grows, of which it's hard to break free. It really is. Blinding us to the presence of God and His reign all around us. Blinding us of how God is moving in goodness in the world. And with every negative statement and experience, life gets sucked out of that little soul and we lose our childlikeness. My wife has a childlikeness. She really does. Looking at pictures of her, you can tell when it's springtime, right? Her, you know, just by her face. In winter, when she's been holed up in a house, she gets like kind of dim. Her eyes kind of grow dim. Uh, but in springtime, her eyes sparkle and I swear they become bluer. They just are just bright. You take her on a trip. This was in Sedona, this one on the left here. You take her on a trip you know, away from the pressures of being mom and pastor's wife and all that stuff, you give her a margarita, you know, <laughs> looking out over a big, you know, mountain range after a good day's hike and all that stuff, and that's what you get. Kim, to me, Kim has a natural sense of the godly limits she's to live within. She doesn't struggle with things like I struggle with them. And it gives her this profound freedom to enjoy God and to enjoy his creation. The limits of his moral uh, standards aren't confining to her. Rather, they produce a purity which keeps cynicism at bay. and, And as a result, she's light and she's joyous, unencumbered by sin and worry. I like that. I like that. It's good for me. (laughs) She's childlike, but she's not childish. There's a difference, right? She's childlike, but not childish. And Jesus says to us, don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry. Oh, easy said and done, Jesus. You know, like, thanks. Right? Don't worry. Because worry kills joy. Worry kills joy, and it diverts our eyes from the parent. It crowds out light, and it lets cynicism seep into the cracks of our soul. Worry doesn't account at all for the provision of God, and it makes us blind to all the wonders that are placed before us. We can't see anymore. And this is why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your thinking, how you view life, your worldview, and all that kind of stuff. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Not His controlling and angry will, but His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, understanding and transformation come by proximity to Jesus where healthy passion is born. Kurt Thompson Author, psychiatrist, and former discipler of mine, I love that I have author friends, um, came out with a book, Anatomy of the Soul, and in it he states that when we apply ourselves to something long enough, new synapses in our brains are formed and uh, new neural connections 
And I want to let him say it better than I can. Let's, let's watch this video really quick. The new evidence would suggest that every time that we have a new thought, that when we think of something like paying attention to a memory or paying attention to emotional states that we've never paid attention to before, that is in fact creating new neural networks. And we know that that data has been shown because of PET scans that have demonstrated that when people meditate in centering prayer exercises, for instance, that the density of neurons that are lighting up in the prefrontal cortex change over time and become more dense. So we know that when people become new in that sense, this is really something happening in the brain. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just in the abstract. When we who follow Jesus say things like, when we are in Christ, we are new creations, what I'm suggesting is that even though St. Paul wasn't a neuroscientist, that this is exactly what he's talking about, that this is real change that is concrete, that is measurable, and it tells us that God's not really kidding when he's creating newness within us. And this kind of concrete change is the kind of change that we're now looking for that gives us some hope and some sense that, yes, there is real transformation that's taking place in my mind, and that when I have the mind of Christ, when my mind is being transformed, that's no longer just language. That's real things that are happening in real bodies. I just texted Kurt and said, I'm using you in my sermon right now. (laughs) Something happens, right? Something physically becomes a habit in us, and habits seem to then continue happening naturally, don't they? Normally, we think of habits as bad, bad habits, but we can form positive habits. We can form spiritual habits. We can, you know, passionate, worshipful habits can be made in us. Scripture urges us to form Jesus-focused habits in this world. And by choosing to believe God's mercy and his grace in humble obedience, we are transformed into these things. We pursue purity and holiness and fully offering ourselves, resulting in inner transformation of our lives, outward change and, and outward joy come Right? It's Colossians 3.10, the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image, in the image of its creator. Right? I'm being changed. I'm being changed. My outlook, everything I see, how I view people, how I view life, and everything is totally different. And that means sometimes giving ourselves over before we understand things. Because you can't understand everything. Understanding doesn't just come from knowledge. Knowledge is very important, but it doesn't just come from knowledge. It's not just information about God which satisfies us. That's just intellectualism. It's actually knowledge in, in, in light of his presence. Letting him teach us. Letting him lead us deeper into that knowledge, to understanding it. And what you put in, you get out, right? To those who ask, more will be given. Being in his presence satisfies as a parent satisfies a child. There's a very big difference in that kind of a lifestyle. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, the living word. But most of us think if we just get more information disconnected from the source, that we'll be satisfied. 
right? As if God had to apply for the role of being my father in life. But fathers don't apply for that role, do they? They don't. They just are dad. And children don't question their word, at least when they're young, obedient children, right? (laughs) As if we could stand off to the side, gathering data before we trust him, right? Just figuring him out before we actually hand over our trust. As if judging for ourselves, is Jesus worth my trust before I give it to him? But relationships don't work that way. We all know it. They don't work that way. We need to trust and we need to recline on the chest of our father as a child would. It may sound conspiratorial to say that there are people in society using their influence and their power in whatever form it takes to eat away at Christian belief. But there are. Everyone's got their agenda. When I first went to college, there was a former priest who had lost his faith who sat me in a room. He was the, like the dean of students or something like that. And he sat me in a room and he said, typically, because he found out I was a Christian, and he said, typically, when, Christian, when Christians come in here, they don't leave as Christians. And you probably will not. We're going to do everything we can to destroy that faith that you have. He literally said that to me. <laughs> God bless him. God bless him. He was wrong. (laughs) If you can only see me now, right? He just made it stronger. There are also simply others out there who lead or teach out of a secular worldview that is contrary to a biblical worldview, and they are inadvertently and unintentionally chipping away at Christian belief as well. We live in a world, and I don't mean this to sound you know, like, oh, i got to look at everything with a crooked eye, but we live in a world that is simply contrary to the gospel, sometimes in hostile ways, and sometimes in, just in, in, in its indifference, right? It's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. All your passion flows, right? Guard your heart. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Because it's important. It's important for our hearts. Some of us have attended schools which have tainted our view of certain groups of people in the world or, or we have just assimilated the, the, the cultural narrative so much that our view of certain other people or people groups are askew and to their detriment, we can't believe anything good about them as a result. We can't see any good in them. We can't see them as people. And notice... If you've set your mind against believing good about someone or you've set your mind against believing something, no matter how good of an argument another person puts forth to you to the contrary of of your thinking, you won't receive that information. And there's a term for that in the world and it's called confirmation bias. When somebody forms an opinion... They tend to embrace information which only supports it and reject or ignore information which doesn't. Ending up in a bubble of our own assumptions, it's next to impossible to change minds even when presented with clear facts to the contrary. You just don't listen. You don't want to listen anymore. 
And it's how many of us approach God. Sometimes, even in our Christianity concerning certain issues in life, we approach God this way. We could read the Bible cover to cover. We could hear it all over and over and over again. We could listen to preachers all day long until they're blue in the face, but we do so with a crooked eye and we have preformed conclusions already in our hearts and it won't make a difference at all. That's called pride. And if we choose to believe the, the cultural secular worldview narrative over and above the Scriptures, over and above Jesus, we'll never find peace in God's Word. We never will. Never. It'll always cause us angst, and we, we've refused to listen to the true source of life who defines it for us, who created us. So we have to approach the Scriptures with this open heart as if we're meeting Jesus because we are. We are. Even when we don't understand why the Scriptures define something in certain ways, we choose to trust Jesus first, allowing Him to clarify issues over time. I know that sounds so stupid and unintellectual. That's how you grew up with your your family. And God is our family. He's our Father. Because in relationship, trust eradicates worry. Trust to our Creator God eradicates, kills anxiety. We are incrementally transformed. New synapses are formed. New habits. Childlike joy then can return. Don't you want to be joyful? Don't you want people to look at, dude, what's wrong with that guy? Why is he so happy? Don't you want that? I want that. I want them to think I'm just absolutely crazy. You know, and, and when all this happens, we can smile again, even in hardship. We can go through very hard times and still smile. No longer the victim. It's no longer everybody else's fault. It's no long, we're no longer trapped. We're no longer confined. In Him, we are free and we are joyful. And that's what Worship United was all about last night. The freedom that we have in Christ. It was really cool. But losing childlikeness leads us to the second thing, and that is our own deception. After a child's gaze is diverted from the good parent, negative influence is all too easy, isn't it? It really is. Our sinful nature at some point dupes us into thinking, uh, into the pursuit of pleasure as an answer to our deep longing for joy. Whether we know it or not, all of us long for an Eden-like whole relationship with God once more. That's what we all want deep down at the core of our souls. However, we are deceived into thinking that pleasures will placate, make us whole, or at the least, they will stave off the emptiness that we all feel when we're quietly in our own bedroom, right? When in reality, all they do is fill the well of emptiness with more despair, more confusion. Pleasures are good when they're enjoyed and when they they produce a gratitude towards God, when they're enjoyed within the confines of how they should be enjoyed. But they slowly become our gods when used in unhealthy ways. An alcoholic doesn't set out in their life to train their body to need alcohol like water or destroy their liver and their relationships. That's not how they set out in life. But one drink relieves stress, which leads to two And eventually, like George Carlin said, one tequila, two tequila, three tequila, floor. Right? And I've turned off my pain for a little while. 
but I've only added to my overall despair. No one sets out to be an addict or an angry old cynic or a jerk know-it-all or an eccentric recluse. None of us set out to be these things. We set out to fill that Eden-like void which only Jesus can fill. Whatever it is in our lives which we hold on to as a security blanket is knitted one link at a time over many, many years. It's hard to unravel it. And first comes the loss of joy and the loss of freedom and then cynicism and then bondage into a self-made prison of a false god. Negative habits and snapses are formed and, if you, and you find yourself in a hole with no way out, right? A little light at the top, smooth walls up going up. You can't climb out. You are that caterpillar back in the ring of fire in need of rescue from above. It's like knitting chain mail together, thinking that that will protect us from the pain of life, but it only becomes our own prison. Maybe it's why Jesus used a child as an example with his disciples in Matthew 18, 2 through 4. It says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of a spooky verse. Because it says in John, you know, John 1, 11 through 13, it says, To all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Born of grace. Children, not cynical adults. Kids who openly need, who trust, who obey their father without shame looking to Him for direction and joy in total and absolute abandon, by grace becoming who they are by grace. The psalmist sensed this when he said in Psalms 131, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against its mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. I mean, that's a little baby with a full stomach, right? O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So his soul is quieted and composed by hope in his heavenly parent. As a result, he enjoys a sense of being a child leaning against his mother or his father's chest. I remember Tanner when he was a little baby, when he was, you know, just one year old or whatever, just leaning against Kim. He would just flop on her like this, you know. Kim's like arms are like dead tired and falling asleep. But Tanner just like not a care in the world. Those are nice moments. Safe, his world in order, totally and absolutely content. The Eden-like state that we all long for with God, but fill in all the wrong ways in our adulthood. There's an interesting passage in Mark 4, just after Jesus told the parable of the sower of the seeds. At the end of that passage, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. We've all got ears. That's kind of confusing. I got ears. I can hear, right? But it gets worse. He says, when he was was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, (laughs) everything is said in parables so that 
They may be ever, see, ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, that's, a, that's really confusing, right? Because I thought, for, in my view of Jesus, Jesus, you know, I, I thought his desire was that all people would come to know him, that would hear the gospel and be forgiven. I thought that was the case. Is he intentionally being vague so that others might not receive forgiveness? Doesn't fit my view. But when you think about who he's talking to, it makes a little bit more sense. It's more easily understood. These are the 12 disciples and maybe a few more. And um, the crowd has dissipated. They've gone away and they, they've gone home confused. Right? And he's left there with only a handful of people who stick around and say, what the heck did you mean by that? What did you mean, Jesus. It's like sitting in a philosophy class of 50 students, right? And the professors just sound, said something confusing and, you know, just out of this world and no one really understands, but the bell rings and everybody like gets up to leave and they, they just take off. They don't really care that they don't understand. They just want to get back to their girlfriend or their TV or whatever turns their mind off. And only a handful of students stick around and ask the professor, what did you mean by that? They are the people that don't give up. They are the people that latch on to the source of life. Those who have ears to hear are those who don't just go away and give up when they don't understand or allow Satan to divert them or get caught up in the worries of life and let it kill your faith or just say that's great and walk away. They pursue Jesus even in their confusion. Even when they don't get it. They come to the end of themselves and they call up from that ring of fire and they say, Jesus, you're the only one that can save me out of this. Because transformation doesn't come from just knowledge. It comes rather from proximity to Christ, from trust, from living it out with Him. So seek first His kingdom, His reign in your heart. Seek first His righteousness. Understand His grace every day that you're alive. Become childlike, not childish. Because when a child's in the company of a parent, everything seems to fall into place, even when you don't know the answers, even if you don't understand it. The object of a child's passion is the parent. And when Jesus becomes our passion, we are freed, we are content, and we become joyful. His desires become our desires. And we give ourselves holistically in passionate worship of Him. His standards then become life-giving to us and not limiting. They foster abundant life for us. They don't kill us. And purity and holiness develop naturally in a lifestyle of holistic, passionate worship of Jesus. And we are transformed and we are renewed in the presence of Christ. It's a good note to end on. (laughs) Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are life giver. That you are one who, if you break us down, you're you're doing it for the sole purpose of building us up. If you're tearing down walls in our hearts, they are walls that shouldn't have been built in the first place. We pray that you would dismantle those walls in our hearts, whatever they may be,
that have kept us from hearing your word, kept, uh, kept us from understanding how much you love us in your grace, kept us from just being close to you and understanding you, that have kept our cynicism alive and flourishing, that have kept our need to be important alive and flourishing. Father, just break our hearts for the sake of your kingdom. Let us pursue your kingdom and let us pursue your righteousness well. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.